One of the most famous explorers in history was Ernest Shackleton. Shackleton was born in Ireland, but he moved to England when he was 10. Uh, He made his name exploring the Antarctic, uh, narrowly missing out on becoming the first person to reach the South Pole. And before he left for his first expedition to the Antarctic in 1907, he's said to have put the following advertisement in a London newspaper. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, honour and recognition in event of success. Now, whether that, that advert ever appeared or not is, is a matter of debate. But, but if it's true, Shackleton was upfront about what joining him would look like. Uh, w- would you uh, go on, on a journey to the South Pole if that was what was on offer? But what if we were to place an advert for following Jesus? Uh, for many, uh, today the advert might sound something like this. Uh, Men and women wanted for a journey that won't make many demands of you. Following Jesus will boost your finances and having faith will give you better health. In general, your earthly life will be better in every way. The problem, of course, is that Jesus has already left us a description of what following him will be like. And it sounds a lot more like a a hazardous and grueling journey to the Antarctic with Shackleton than the version of Christianity which many creatures or many preachers pass off, uh, or many uh, devotionals advocate. Uh, we could sum up Jesus' description of the Christian pilgrimage in these verses in three words: uh, we'll, we'll, we'll face unbelief, uh, we'll face persecution, but we will see progress. Uh, and those three words are our theme this evening. As we think of the advance of the gospel, unbelief, persecution, but progress. Uh, The first reaction to Jesus that we see in these verses is unbelief. Uh, A few years ago, people signed a petition against the actor Damien Lewis. Uh, What was his crime? What, What weren't they happy about? Well, he had planned to take part in the 50th anniversary celebration of his local comprehensive school. Uh, Why would people object to that? Uh, Well, the the problem, as they thought, was that Lewis himself had been educated at Eton and critics felt that he was too posh to take part uh, the head teacher of the school said it was great that he wanted to be involved in the community, but, but for many people, the local boy wasn't welcome. And in the first six verses of this chapter, we find the same reaction in Nazareth. Uh, the name of the town isn't mentioned, but verse 1 tells us that Jesus came to his hometown. And how would you expect them to react Uh, To this uh, local figure who had been doing amazing things. Surely we'd expect them to roll out the red carpet. Uh, We'd expect them to to flock to hear Jesus. This is the one place where where surely he can be certain of an enthusiastic reaction. But it's quite the opposite. 
In verse 2, they unleash a string of heated questions. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? In other words, who does this man think he is? Verse 3 gets to the heart of the problem. As one version translates it, is this not the joiner? They knew Jesus, they knew his family, and they took offence at his ordinariness. The Jews were expecting the Messiah to be a warrior-like figure, not someone they had lived next door to. Not somebody that they had paid to do work for them in the past. Not someone local that they or their children had grown up with. Today we might say familiarity breeds contempt. Their slogan in verse 4, a prophet is not without honour except in his hometown. It is astonishing These people have grown up with God himself living among them. As a young child, as a boy, as a teenager, Jesus had never done anything wrong. Boys and girls, imagine growing up with someone like that. They never did anything wrong and everything they did do was good. They they perfectly obeyed God. As Jesus grew older and became the village carpenter, he he would never cut corners. He would always go the extra mile. He'd never, ever let anyone down. He'd never said a bad word about anybody, never held a grudge, not even secretly. He'd never cut anybody down with a cruel joke that that took things too far. He had been the, the perfect son the perfect brother, the perfect friend, the perfect worker. And they took offence at him. No wonder, verse 6 says, that Jesus marvelled because of their unbelief. It is the, the final proof that living a godly life isn't enough to convert anybody. It's important, we're called to, but it won't convert anybody. Uh, there's that, that old quote, uh, wrongly, uh, probably attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, if necessary, use words, and it's quite catchy, you know, the, the message is, well, we're preaching the gospel with our lives, and, and maybe sometimes we'll have to use words as well. But it doesn't work like that. Uh, people can look at, at a at an exemplary life, even a perfect life, and remain unconvinced. <coughs> In fact, their, their unbelief was so stubborn and fixed that verse 5 says that Jesus could do no mighty work there. Is that not an amazing thing when we think of what we saw uh, this morning about how God makes one vessel for one purpose and another vessel uh, for another now, it's not that Jesus being able to do miracles depended on people believing in him. But what does he say again and again to those that he does heal? He says, your faith ha- has made you well. We see that if we go up even to verse 34 of chapter 5. The daughter, your faith has made you well. And so if people don't have faith, they're not going to experience any miracles 
Jesus isn't interested in setting himself up as a miracle worker. He's interested in having a relationship with people. He's interested in seeing weak faith become strong faith. But here he comes up against a brick wall of unbelief. And he marvels. And Jesus still marvels at unbelief today. Particularly, I think we can say in light of this passage, the unbelief of those who should know better. Those who have grown up with him. Who, who grows up with Jesus today? Those who, those who grew up at hearing all about him. Those who grew up being taught about him. But then turn away. That is unbelief to be marveled at. Or those who have heard the gospel, who have seen Jesus' power at work in, the term, in, in terms of, of the conversions of, of those in a local church. And then they turn away from it. Or those who are content to be merely Christian on the outside, but not on the inside. And so if you're a believer in Jesus tonight and you want to see the good news spread, this passage surely warns us that if Jesus faced unbelief, we will too. Even, and maybe especially from people we would expect to believe. Jesus prepares his disciples for it in verse 11, that it would all be plain sailing. If any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Shaking the dust off your feet was what the Jews were meant to do when they returned home from traveling outside Palestine, lest they polluted the Holy Land. Yet Jesus was sending the disciples to Jewish villages. But he's saying that if if they don't believe in Jesus as God's Messiah, then they're to be treated like the heathen. By their actions, they've shown that they're not actually part of God's true people. So if Jesus faced unbelief, if he warned his disciples that they would face unbelief, we will too. And yeah, that doesn't mean we shouldn't bother trying Because verse 11 assumes that there are other places and other people who will accept the message. Uh, There are some places where the disciples will have to shake the dust off their feet, but but not everywhere. We're still called to go out with the message of repentance in verse 12. But as Shackleton warned those who followed him, we shouldn't expect it to be easy. And we shouldn't try and change the message to something more popular because these verses show that the problem isn't with the message the problem is with the hearts of those to whom we're sent so the first thing on Jesus advertisement uh, that we're told we'll face is on belief are you willing to follow Jesus if that is what you will come up against again and again are you willing to keep taking this message out Secondly, we see persecution. So firstly, tonight on belief. Secondly, persecution. Uh, One of Mark's uh, favourite techniques in writing his gospel is to move from one scene to another and then come back to the first scene. Uh, 
it's been described as a sandwich technique. You start with the bread and then you move to the filling in the middle and then you come back to the bread again. And Mark does it here as he moves from the mission of the apostles in verse 13 to this interlude about the death of John the Baptist in verses 14 to 29. But then he goes back in verse 30 and finishes off speaking about the mission of the disciples. And whenever Mark uses that technique, uh, the, the bit in the middle is never just a random aside, but it always relates to what comes before and after. So how does John's death at the hands of Herod tie in with Jesus sending out the disciples? Well, it ties in because it shows what had happened to an earlier witness to Jesus. Jesus is sending the disciples out to witness for him. And here Mark stops and tells us, gives us a flashback to, to what happened to an earlier witness for Jesus. What happened to John? He was beheaded. And that is a warning that Jesus' disciples will face not just unbelief but persecution. Boys and girls, you might remember the name Herod from the stories of Jesus' birth. Joseph was warned in a dream that, that they would have to stay in Egypt for a while because Herod the Great was wanting to kill Jesus. Well, Herod the Great was the father of this Herod. And when the Romans took over a country, rather than, than, than bring in Roman rulers from the outside, they would let one of the, the local families rule over the country uh, to try and keep the people happy and stop them rebelling. Uh, so the, the Herods were the ruling family in Palestine at the time. And the Herods were used to living however they wanted. Uh, this Herod, he sent his first wife packing and married Herodias, his brother's wife, now, according to Jewish law, he couldn't even have done that if his brother had died. But his brother was still alive, so this is doubly wrong. But John the Baptist stands up to him, and he's put in prison for his troubles. But Herod couldn't bring himself to kill John. Verse 20 says that he kept him safe. And in fact, he liked to listen to John's preaching. It seems that he would summon John from prison from time to time and listen to what he said. Uh, we might say today that Herod had a love-hate relationship with John the Baptist. But Herodias, Herod's second wife, she can't stand it. Uh, we could say her relationship with John is, is a hate-hate relationship. She has no time for him at all. And so when Herod has plenty of drink in him at his birthday party, she seizes her chance. <coughs> uh, we know from other historians of the time that her daughter was called Salome. Uh, and Salome comes in and dances. Uh, as someone said, we can only imagine what kind of dance prompted Herod to promise her up to half his kingdom. So Herod makes a rash vow. She can have anything she wants. And Salome confers with her mother who has just been waiting for a moment like this. Have you ever been given a gift card and, and as soon as you get it you know exactly what you're going to spend it on? Well that's what Herodias is like. 
Without missing a beat, she tells her daughter what to request. I want you to give me at once on a platter the head of John the Baptist. And in that split second, Herod would have sobered right up. He regretted it instantly. He realised he'd walked into a trap. But verse 26, the fact that he had sworn repeatedly in front of so many people uh, meant that he would rather kill John than lose face. So an executioner is called for and soon after John's head is brought in on a plate and given to the girl who gives it to her mother. Do you know there are only two passages in Mark's gospel that aren't about Jesus? Both are about John the Baptist. And both are about the persecution that John faced. And what John faced foreshadows what Jesus would face. Both John and Jesus stood trial before a weak ruler who based their decisions on the pressure they felt because of the crowds. Herod respected John as a holy and righteous man. Pilate asked the crowd why he should crucify Jesus because he couldn't find any fault in him. The scheming of Herodias is similar to the scheming of the Jewish leaders who had long since decided that Jesus must be killed. We have that lovely touch in verse 29 where John's disciples hear of it and they come and take his body and lay it in the tomb. And that, that verse, it's speaking about John the Baptist, but it could be speaking of Jesus with Joseph of Arimathea. Who asked Pilate for Jesus' body so he could come and take it and lay it in a tomb. So this section, it doesn't mention Jesus, but it's clearly foreshadowing what will happen to Jesus. And the fact that Mark includes it in the middle of the section about the apostles being sent out. It's saying that in many cases this will happen to them as well. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? If, if you had to write on a page, if you had to draw on a page what following Jesus looked like, would you draw a picture of persecution? Are you happy enough to go along with Jesus as long as it doesn't overly interfere in your life? As long as it doesn't affect what people think of you or, or make too many demands of you? Are you ready for the reality that as we try and reach this time with, with good news as we try and bring a message to people that will, will transform their lives now and for eternity. That there will be people who are strongly, strongly opposed to us saying that Jesus is the only way to heaven. That all religions don't lead to God. There are people who will hate that we would say that we're all born sinners and deserving God's wrath. There are those who will not like it when we say that because God made people, he decides how we're to live. He decides who can marry who. He decides how many genders there are. Maybe you wonder, can we not just leave controversial issues like that aside and just focus on the main things but 
Why is John beheaded here? John is beheaded because he's saying that even though Herod is king, it doesn't give him the right to redefine marriage. John speaks out against the the public evil that is taking place in his society. He, He could have kept his head down. He speaks out. He suffers. What were the disciples called to proclaim in verse 12? That people should repent. And if we're not clear about what sin is, people won't know what they need to repent of. But such a message will not be popular and persecution will come. Verse 3 says people took offence at Jesus. And that's not just a one-off. It doesn't just happen in Nazareth. Jesus still causes offence today. Because unless the Holy Spirit has been at work in someone's life, they will find the message of the Bible offensive. And that often leads to persecution. So on our advertisement for following Jesus so far, we have unbelief. We have persecution. Are you wondering what you've signed up to? Do you still want to keep going? Well, thirdly, finally, and more encouragingly, we have progress. Progress. Perhaps the most famous Christian book outside the Bible is The Pilgrim's Progress. And even the title tells us that there should be progress. Progress in the life of the individual Christian. Progress as the church goes out with the gospel. After all, Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so in the midst of unbelief, under threat of persecution, in verse 13, we read of the disciples making progress. They cast out many demons and healed many who were sick. The fact that the disciples were able to do miracles, it surely implies faith on behalf of those who were sick. So the kingdom of God is here making visible inroads into the kingdom of darkness. And so in spite of the fact that many will not be interested, despite the reality of persecution, God's work still goes on. And we need to keep our focus on that. We need to keep an eye on that as well. Uh, We can't uh, just let unbelief and persecution so crowd our vision that we lose sight of what God is actually doing in the world. Uh, Because we can be assured that these uh, same three things uh, will be going on at every stage of human history. There will be unbelief, there will be persecution, but there will be progress. Maybe you, you say, well, where's the progress? What can we really achieve Maybe you think that you've been a Christian for such a short period of time and there are so many things that you don't know that that how can you make any impact for Jesus? But look at who Jesus uses here. The disciples have not come across too well in Mark's gospel so far. Based on what we've seen about them, we could conclude that they are wholly inadequate and unprepared to be sent on a mission like this. They still don't understand who Jesus is. I won't come till chapter 8. They don't have all the answers, but Jesus sends them out anyway. They're still very much in training. 
But part of their training is to let them loose. If you try and wait till you feel prepared to go out and speak to people about the gospel, you'll never go. If you're trying to wait until you have it all together, until uh, you feel worthy to speak to other people about Jesus, that will never happen. Uh, there'll never be a point where you know answers to any possible objections people could throw at you. But Jesus doesn't wait till people feel ready, because if you felt ready, you wouldn't have to rely on God. Uh, I heard this week about a, a gangster in Wales uh, who uh, became a Christian. Uh, he was in a nightclub, and there was a girl there. She uh, she was a Christian or had made a profession of faith in the past and she shared the gospel with him. And I'm sure her life was not what it should have been. And maybe she, should, she could have thought, well, I can't, I can't talk about Jesus because some of the things I've done. But she shared the gospel with him and he was converted. So progress in the kingdom isn't just made by those who know all the answers. But now there is progress in the kingdom made by people who are relying on their own resources. That's what the, the list of things in verses 8 and 9 is about. This list of things that, that they are allowed to bring and they're not allowed to bring. They're not to bring their own resources with them. They're not to bring enough money so that they can afford to live on the outskirts of the town and commute in to preach. Instead, they're to rely on the hospitality of the people they've been sent to. They're not to rely on their own resources. Now, sometimes people go wrong here. They think that these guidelines are for all time rather than just a specific occasion. Uh, they think that to live by faith means not raising money, not paying missionaries or ministers. But the rest of the New Testament shows us that that is not meant to be the normal pattern. In fact, in Luke twenty-two thirty-six, just before he's crucified, Jesus sends the disciples out again. But this time it's for the long haul. He says, but now let the one who has a money bag take it. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul quotes the Old Testament to show that elders who labour in preaching and teaching deserve their wages. But there's still a principle here that remains. As we try and spread the gospel to those around us, we must rely on God, not ourselves. Not our knowledge, not how many times we've done it before, not our financial resources, uh, not uh, anything that we have. We're not to rely on the talents we have. We're not to put confidence in financial resources or manpower or, or gifted and enthusiastic individuals. Instead, our hope is to be firmly in God. The list of things that are to bring is actually the same as what the Jews were told to bring with them in Exodus 12, 11, when they were fleeing Egypt. It suggests urgency. There isn't a moment to be lost. This isn't a message that people can take or leave. They must repent because there's no other way to be right with God. Have we lost our sense of urgency and so if we do go out like this relying on God what can we expect we can expect unbelief we can expect persecution but we can also expect progress 
not necessarily in every place. Will there be places today as here where, where we need to shake the dust off our feet? Uh, there's no promise in the Bible even that any one individual church will grow and thrive. But the, the big picture is always growth. These 12 were now just commanded. And today 2.4 billion people at least claim the name Christian. Now many of that number uh, no doubt have no real relationship with Jesus. But, but the big picture is that despite the unbelief and despite the persecution. Jesus will build his church. Shackleton could not promise success to those who signed up for his expeditions. But Jesus can. Because he died to make it certain. He died to redeem a multitude that no one could number. From every nation. From all tribes and peoples and languages. When Shackleton died it was a failure on one of his expeditions. But when Jesus died it was success. And the potential glory that Shackleton offered is nothing compared to the glory that we will know. The man who, who beat Shackleton to the South Pole, was, we, we could have a, have a test after to see if anyone knows his name. Maybe there's one or two here that have heard of him. Uh, I don't think many people will know who the first man to the South Pole is. Uh, but... Uh, our names, uh, Jesus says, rejoice that your name is written in heaven. Uh, Jesus says uh, of the, the widow uh, and her two coins that what she has done or, or, or the woman uh, anointing her, her oil, her, his, his feet, uh, that what they had done would be told in memory of them. Yes, it will be hard when Jesus message brings us outright persecution and rejection but if we keep our eyes on what is ahead we will be able to say with the apostle for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us so yes brothers and sisters it will be hard it will not all be plain sailing but victory is assured and all we have to do by God's grace is keep going. Amen.